the kid who grew up in a lot of what some people might call more disadvantaged circumstances, yeah, I'd love to have a role, but that's not my place. That's not what I'm trained in. That's not what I excel at. I'm good at looking at the data. I'm good at analyzing it and figuring out what's happening. And that's what my training is. And so I think that the best approach would be for policymakers, right? They're the ones who know the ins and out of our legal system. They're the ones who quite literally were elected to do this type of work. And a number of them have proposed policies that could potentially reduce the gaps in risk of early life mortality that we show in this study. That was David Brott. He's a recent graduate from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. While a student here, David used his data analysis skills to study sociology, how social constructs and institutions influence daily lives. And this is Well Said, Carolina's official storytelling podcast. On today's episode, David will discuss a study he conducted as an affiliate at the Carolina Population Center. His research was the first in more than 20 years to look into socioeconomic factors that contribute to the discrepancy of early life mortality rates in the United States. Before David found himself at the Carolina Population Center, he first had to figure out that he wanted to study sociology. He has a personal connection to the field, especially to early life mortality. So my mother's first marriage, she and her husband were married for, I believe, 16 years or more, and two of her children died. I didn't know my brothers. I was born after uh, the fact. But within just over three years, she lost two sons. One drowned and one was killed in a car accident. You know, a driver hit the family car and Again, I, I, I didn't know them because I wasn't born, but watching her struggle with this, uh, watching her deal with the loss and watching my siblings recount their stories, again, it, it kind of melded with the patterning of, of circumstances that I kept observing. And, and when I had the opportunity, I said, you know, I, I really want to know if there is a pattern and what those patterns are. And hopefully that could help save lives later on in the future. That personal connection drew David to sociology and brought him to Carolina, where he recently published research on early life mortality. It's a topic that's not researched much. It's a good thing, but early life mortality, so dying between the ages of 1 to 24, is a rare event. So it's hard to find data that is large enough to give you statistically significant findings. And what that means in layman's terms is essentially if you don't have enough instances of death to observe, you cannot conduct an analysis that's informative. And so it's been hard. Um, the National Institutes of Health um, and other organizations have had cuts in funding that have affected different data collection efforts. And the other thing is that there there's other data that's more easily accessible for other mortality events. So infant mortality. There's a lot more infant mortality. There's a lot more later life mortality. So adults, you know, but uh, over the ages of 35. And so demographers and sociologists tend to study those two ranges, you know, infants, zero to one, and adults generally about 35 and older. Due to those reasons, early life mortality kind of gets left out. 
the crux of the question is that between the ages of 1 to 24 is when humans are most robust, right? We're, we're least likely to die from biological causes, which simply means that if we do observe a distinct patterning of increased risk of death in that age range, it's most likely due to social and institutional structures and values in our society, right? Whereas infant mortality, there's, there's a lot of things that are social and institutional as well, but there's a higher risk of disease and biological causes of death amongst that group. And the same with adults. To save the lives of people between the ages of 1 and 24, David says society needs to use its resources more responsibly. He wanted to get better information to make more responsible decisions, to update that study from more than 20 years ago, and examine if things had changed. But he didn't really know what he was going to find. It depends on if you ask the pessimistic side of me or the optimist in me, right? The optimist wanted to find nothing. I, I just wanted to find that early life mortality was random, that it just happens and there's no rhyme or reason to it that it, yeah, it just happens. But the pessimist in me and the demographer and sociologist in me knew that there was going to be a pattern and, and was pretty confident that we would uncover a pattern in which the least Americans who have less resources would have a higher risk of losing a child between the ages of 1 to 24. That's exactly what we found. We found it based on parental education, both mothers and fathers, and income, and if you're raised in a single-parent household. This study was the first to really delve into this multidimensional aspect of family and parental resources. The most recent study to look at this besides the one that we just published was published 20 years ago, 22 years ago, and they used data from over four decades ago. The patterns they found are very similar to what we found, but they were for the least advantaged. And the measures of family resources that they used were, they were good for the time, but they were limited. So it was highest house, head of household education, which what does that mean, right? I mean, is the head of household your grandmother, your father, your mother, like, right? Our study really builds on that previous work, but more importantly, it allows us a greater level of detail to understand how these patterns exist. And maybe policy can be enacted to address certain dimensions over others. David's study matches survey data of more than 370,000 families with death certificates. And it looks at four dimensions of family resources. The mother's education, the father's education, household income, and whether or not each parent was present in the household. Each factor had a statistically significant impact on the risk of a child in that household dying between 1 and 24. And that's huge. What that means is that if we have poverty reduction policies, right, that's targeted at family income. If that's the only policy that we have to address this disproportionate risk of dying young, well, it's going to fail, right, because it's only one of the factors, and at this point, I should state that, you know, our study is associational. That means that we don't have any causal link between these dimensions of parental resources and family resources, but we're looking at associations, right? So we don't know if the direct cause of this association is because 
families who have less income live in poorer neighborhoods that have less infrastructure. So whether that be straight up, they don't have sidewalks, or if it's that the sidewalks are all broken down and kids are riding their bikes in the street, right? It could be any one of those causes. But again, the data don't allow us to look at that causal inference. They allow us to look at the association between these factors. What that means is David found that a pattern exists. For example, compared to children whose fathers obtained a bachelor's degree or more education, children living with fathers who did not complete high school are at a 41% higher risk of dying young. But David's research did not find what causes that 41% higher risk. Because this is associational, this is saying that we find these patterns and we find them across these, these groups of people. We don't know what's causing it. It's not saying that a parent who decided to go to college but not graduate is causing more risk to their child. No, by no means is the study saying that. It's simply saying that the resources that that parent has access to are associated with a higher risk. David successfully defended his dissertation in July, and he will start as a postdoctoral fellow in August at the University of Colorado in Boulder. I will be continuing research on early life mortality um, with some colleagues at Colorado, but I'll also be looking at the other area of my substantive research, which is the intersection of genetics and social science. How does a genetic predisposition for a certain trait, whether that be obtaining more education or a risk of developing diabetes, how do those interact with the environments that we grow up in? Right? And how do, how do they change that genetic propensity? Or how does our environment help shield us from a genetic propensity for negative traits? But David will be sure to take lessons he learned at Carolina with him when he moves. It is a phenomenal research university. Some of the brightest and best scholars looking at mortality, Robert Hummer is one of those, and he's great. But across many fields... You get to have this interdisciplinary approach. Working with the Carolina Population Center has been phenomenal. The resources that I have access to here, you know, the simple resources, a nice place to work. I'm not a graduate student who's stuck in a broom closet trying to do research. I have a place that I can come and work and feel comfortable. Those are major advantages. But again, beyond that, it's the intellectual community where we can discuss and bounce ideas off of one another and say, you know, I think that's, I think you have a good idea. Maybe you need better data. And then you can go and search for better data, or maybe you had the data and you, you come and say, well, here's the question I want to answer. And someone says, well, what if you thought about it in a different way, right? Maybe if you approach this from looking at parental resources as multidimensional instead of just parental education, you might be able to have a more robust finding and, and to tell a better story with the data. You know, it's not just, well, I have a story, I want to tell it. It's what do the facts tell us? Right? What, what, what can we observe instead of just, what do I want to say? And he'll continue trying to help kids live better lives. More importantly, I want to help kids who are like my siblings that I've never met. They're the ones who aren't here, and they don't have a voice because A, they're not here. B, kids generally don't have a voice. In all the policy debate about education, breaking down barriers to higher education, in all the policy debate about income supplement programs or poverty reduction programs, it is very common that 
the focus is on the recipient, the immediate recipient, and not the kids that stand behind them. And this research highlights that those policies could have downstream effects in important ways that could save the lives of children. I mean, children are the most vulnerable population in the US. Like, they don't get a vote. They don't get a say in, in these processes, but we as adults do. And I think that it's important that we use the information that we have in responsible ways. To look at David's research findings more in depth, go to cpc.unc.edu. That's the Carolina Population Center's website. So you can find other projects the center does at that site too. If you've got a story idea for Well Said, tweet us at UNC. Or send us an email at wellsaid at unc.edu. You can find Well Said wherever you get podcasts. So we hope you'll subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you for listening to this episode of Well Said. See you next week.